In New Jersey, we found some key Welcome to this week's episode of Jersey Matters. We're your hosts. I'm Mike Perino. And I'm Casey McLean. This week, we're going to dive into a little bit of coronavirus talk because there's some updates on that. After that, we'll take you to Murphy's Corner, talking about some of the new stuff that he's done. In the headlines, we'll talk about there's a new law about false 911 calls, and a BLM organizer was billed money for police overtime, so we'll talk about why that's messed up. Illegal donations in New Jersey related to uh, at least one law firm, and what were the political implications of that, what happened. Then we'll talk about the New Jersey census. After the headlines, we're going to give you part two of our discussion from a couple weeks ago about, uh, it was election talk, and I'll be talking about Biden, Harris, third parties, and just kind of like everything uh, related to that topic and why yeah. Biden and Harris suck. So <laughs> this is a pretty good episode again this week, as it always is, but um, every, we're kind of returning. Week. Yeah, we're kind of returning to our norm of like coronavirus talk, because once again, coronavirus is back. Not that back. it was really gone, but it's like going up. So I have a pretty good NJ.com article from two days ago. On September 4th, it was written, New Jersey reports 455 new COVID-19 cases, nine more deaths. Transmission rate increases again to just below key mark. And it says, with an unusual new school year kicking off and limited indoor dining set to return. We'll talk more about that in a bit. For Labor Day weekend, New Jersey on Thursday reported nine more deaths attributed to the coronavirus and 455 new cases. This marks the first time in 12 days the state has reported more than 400 positive tests in a single day. And Murphy commented saying, quote, that's another data point that shows we're not out of the woods yet. Yes, Murphy, we're not out of the woods yet. <laughs> we are not. Yes. He's not wrong. He's not uh, wrong, but he's kind of like really bothering me lately with this succumbing to pressure. Yeah, he just keeps succumbing to pressure and it, more things are opening while the numbers are starting to slowly creep up again and we're ahead of the flu season and if you go in for any kind of physical your doctor or even just pick up a prescription from your local pharmacy they will push a flu test on you uh and you i mean some people out there don't believe in flu tests and not flu tests flu vaccines and um it's a thing that I do every year because I've had the flu before and it, it works. it's gnarly. It's awful, but you could still get, and that's another thing with people who get flu vaccines are like, well, you could still get sick from a different strain of the flu that the vaccine's not protecting against. And like, it's like, okay, you know, you're <laughs> not wrong, but the problem is, is you have flu season amongst the coronavirus pandemic, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it's like good to at least be vaccinated against one of them, like the one yes. that you can. And they're trying to rule it out. So if you were to go to the emergency yeah. room, one of the first questions they're going to ask you, because the symptoms are very similar, they're going to ask you if you got a flu vaccine. And then if you didn't, then they could, you know, run the test for both. But if you have, then they can at least rule that out probably. And you probably have COVID. And, you know, then you'll deal with that. But... <laughs> Uh, uh, um, you know, gyms reopening slowly. I don't know if we want to get into those articles now. I think it's a good spot. Yeah. So put it all here because it's it's kind of frustrating. Do you want to start with gyms and then we can go to like restaurants and schools? Yeah. So (laughs) this was a saga you've (laughs) covered personally. (laughs) 
And this is an article from New Jersey News Network. So COVID-19, New Jersey gyms open for indoor workouts with new restrictions. So this is an article. Um, again, no journalist is listed as the, the writer of this, but from the top. But in Freehold, this is where the article's located. There are now more than just eight simple rules for booking a date at the gym in New Jersey. So Tuesday, September 1st marks the first day gyms and fitness centers can reopen for indoor workouts without being limited to private slash private individual slash immediate family workouts amid the coronavirus pandemic. But there are restrictions. So the Murphy administration has outlined what customers and gym staff must do in order to adhere to the rules and regulations of reopening. And this was a thing that we talked about for movie theaters reopening, indoor dining reopening, gym specifically reopening, was that the Murphy administration had to put up guidelines for these institutions, organizations to follow in order for them to reopen. And the problem with that is, you know, there's not... <laughs> How do you supervise a whole state's, you know, gym facility reopening? You know, how do you how do you supervise any of it being done properly? And individuals visiting those establishments, some people are just nasty and they don't care about shared public space and they don't care about fellow human beings being protected against its deadly virus, but you know, that's either here nor there. So gyms can conduct their business as usual somewhat. So they have an indoor capacity set at 25% and they have to get a little creative apparently about how they welcome back members and customers. So there's a whole list of what they need to do. So beyond limiting the capacity for the indoor area, they have to also limit the capacity of any outdoor area and insist that individuals stay six feet apart and then they have to require workers and customers to wear cloth face coverings and i wonder if that like i don't know if i don't know what kind of mask you wear but i wear one of the like disposable the disposable um, like blue ones yeah right? so I wonder, yeah that's the ones i wear those aren't yeah. cloth though right they're no. like basically paper yeah so you have to wear cloth face coverings while indoors and in outdoor areas where social distancing is difficult to maintain you and if a customer refuses to wear a cloth face covering for non-medical reasons then the business must decline that individual's entry they have to limit occupancy in the restrooms and they have to again maintain the social distancing through signage and where practicable they have to have attendance to monitor you know people going in or out they're doing that at the libraries too just so everyone knows um, libraries are open in New Jersey, and they have people Muse in the museums as well. Yeah, and they, yeah. they have people in the front of the building, and they have like these uh, tally markers where when someone comes in or someone goes out, they are physically diligently tracking the, the indoor capacities. And also back to the gym issue, there's going to be limited use of equipment rented or otherwise one person at a time. And they also have to sanitize the equipment, which we both we both have gone to gyms and we both knew before COVID that people are really lax with sanitizing their equipment. I have, I'll just be uh, frank, I have zero faith that anything will be sanitized. <laughs> like, mean, they like, can't, they don't even sanitize it when it's just sweat. Oh my. Yeah. Or they're going to make us sanitize it, which just yeah. means I'm putting myself at risk to get COVID. Like, exactly. God. Uh, just because you want to go to the gym. 
Um, and then lastly, they're going to require reservations, cancellations, and prepayments made via electronic or telephone reservation systems to limit physical interactions. Uh, so this is pretty much <laughs> everything you would expect. And I'm sure there's going to be more details that come out. And if you are a gym member at a specific gym, I recommend you go to them specifically to see what exactly they're doing because these are the basic bare minimum regulations out there, but individual businesses might have a more rigorous protocol. They might have, they might build like separation walls. They might space out their equipment more. And it's something to be aware of because the first time I went to outdoor dining, I wanted to do it as an experiment to see what exactly people were doing. And I feel like that's how you should treat everything that's reopening is you give it a test run, and if you show up there and it's not what you were hoping, then just leave, you know, and take your money elsewhere. Gym memberships are just like money, just like in the garbage can for the most part <laughs> for most people, uh, especially now. I've been paying for a gym membership that I haven't been using for Oh, I canceled as soon as they said. Oh, I could you did? Go. Yeah, I was like, all right, I'm not paying for this, man. <laughs> They're like, you want to do like online Zumba classes? And I'm like, not at all. <laughs> But that's that's it for gyms, basically, and restaurants got, have reopened. I got some stuff on restaurants. Yeah. So they're opening indoor dining, and it's at, like, a lower capacity. And uh, the Philadelphia Inquirer had a pretty good article about it, written by Allison Steele. Uh, New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy is reopening indoor dining. Restaurants are still worried. Two months ago, New Jersey Phil Murphy cited spiking coronavirus infections in other states as a reason to postpone the return of indoor dining as restaurants opened across the country said it was clearly sparking new outbreaks. Now, as the state's restaurant industry prepares to open indoor dining rooms on Friday, some fear the state of their businesses will continue to depend on how others handle the pandemic. And uh, I think that's an interesting thing to note, because, like, basically, we started the opening, uh, I want to say, at the end of May, right? Was that really about when it was? When we started dropping down? The road to recovery? Down. The road to recovery started around the end of May, and... We had about, I'm looking at the chart right now, we had about between 700, 500, or 500, 700 cases a day uh, at that time. Nothing was open when we dropped all the way by the end of June and July when we had 100 or 300 cases and it got down to even close to like 100 a day. And then now that we're spiking back up to 300, we're, like, we're spiking back up to where it was before when things started to get closed, we're going to yeah. open again? Like, it doesn't make any logical sense. And, and it's just being the pressure that the governor is exactly, facing. Exactly. That's, that's all it's doing. It's not saying yeah. that he is concerned for the citizens and the welfare of just even the children. Like, think of Seriously. the children. <laughs> so our usual, I laugh, but... Our usual antagonist on his show picks, uh, is mentioned in this article. State Senate President Stephen Sweeney said he wishes Murphy had kept in step with the reopening pace of New Jersey's neighbors, citing the state's plummeting sales tax revenue. Indoor dining has been allowed in Delaware and in Philadelphia's Collar County since June. Philadelphia restaurants will resume indoor service next week. Quote, Delaware is opening for dining and we're not. Pennsylvania was selling cars before we were. You look at where barbershops opened and we were late on that too, Sweeney said. People have cars and if people want a service, they're going to go get it, end quote. Yeah, so I just looked at the numbers again for, for June and they, they weren't great. I mean, like 300, 400 a day towards the end of June, it dropped to like 200 and spiked back up to 300. We're starting to open stuff now and, and stuff's going up. So what exactly does Steve Sweeney want here? 
I think also are we really going to compare ourselves to Philadelphia a state that <laughs> no like frankly is is garbage like I like our uh, uh, Pennsylvania I mean but uh Pennsylvania is like is so poorly run like everyone knows like everyone knows New Jersey is like corrupt and everyone yeah. knows that Pennsylvania is like completely poorly run and mismanaged and Delaware is a state just that's just a tax hideout for a bunch of uh corporations and has like 12 people that live there like yeah. what why are we comparing ourselves Build, uh, Pennsylvania is a giant open state that basically has three major cities and outside of those cities it's rural areas, whereas we're the most densely populated state in the entire country with and, of almost 9 million people. Like, it's completely different. Yeah, and his comments, you know, Sweeney's comments are very much focused on business. Business yep. and revenue, and when he says stuff like, you know, they, they've... Not risking anything. Not yeah, risking their lives. Exactly. So it's the... And that's the thing, like... The major concern should be on the workers, the employees, the students, the people who cannot, what do you call it, uh, people who are sick, people who are elderly, children, you know, the innocence of our state who cannot, not that they can't take care of themselves, but they are put at a greater risk. And when you're reopening schools because you're saying other states are, and you're reopening businesses because you say other states are, and you're talking about lost tax revenue, or, you know, it's, you're looking at dollar signs, and you're looking at our neighbor, neighboring states, and you're saying they're able to do this. It, but it's not a question of, are you able to? It's, should you? Yep. And that is what's lost a lot of the time. And you point to financial figures, and you say, well, this this is what is at risk. But really, you should look at the population numbers and say, this is what is at risk, you know, yep. the There's loss. <laughs> one of on. the major, one of the major benchmarks, if you remember for like all this stuff was the transmission rate. You know, if it's transmission rate of one, then it means like one person spreads it to one person. And Murphy said he wants to bring it below one. And, uh, it, and if we open up and it starts rising up and getting close to one again, then that's when you know that we're screwing stuff up. Well, just last week, it looks like, or maybe two weeks ago, we had a transmission rate of the virus that was up to already risen. I think it dropped to like 0.8 or something like that. And then it rose up to 0.96. Now it's at 0.99. What do you think is going to happen in a week or two when this stuff's opened? Is it going to just freeze at 0.99? It's going to go over one, which means then we're now spreading the disease more than combating it. Like once yeah. again, which puts all those people at risk that you just mentioned. So schools, did we talk about that? We talked about gyms and restaurants. Yeah, no schools yet. Oh, God. All right. So schools are levels of understanding the school reopening. The first is that I think there isn't really a state plan. I know they say there is, but it kind of seems like the plan is each county and municipality figure it out on your own, each university figure it out on your own and try to be smart about it. That's basically how it seems to be implemented, because some places are start, like basically postponing in-person classes. Others, like there's an article from ABC7 News 4,000 students returned for in-person learning in one New Jersey school district. So the Wake Lakewood School District is among 63 statewide offering full in-person instruction, though one of its schools was forced to delay its opening. Lakewood Middle School won't be ready to open until next Tuesday because eight modular units, one of their key social distancing initiatives to ease crowding, aren't ready. And I'm looking at pictures and video. It's basically just glass in between tables. It's... That's not yeah. how diseases work. 
a, a couple of the teachers threatened job action, claiming that the schools are not safe, because of course they aren't. And it's just like 4,000 students are going to start attending schools in this district. I mean, it's not just Lakewood. I don't want to single it yeah. out because, you know, like Lakewood has a high, like ultra-Orthodox Jewish population that's kind of, uh, uh, there's a lot of contentious issues there and some of it dips into anti-Semitism, which I don't tolerate. But it's uh, it, it's just this article is kind of incredible. It's 4,000 students are returning. It's a lot, but it's not just Lakewood. There's a bunch of places that are doing it. There's some colleges that are doing it too. It's just, again, it comes to, I'll just say Murphy talked a big talk about having a plan to reopen based on like data and prioritizing health over other things. And uh, I don't see him walking the walk, essentially. What do you think? I agree. I think the issue is that we have, and Murphy generally, he's been looking at what other states, what other countries have been doing and modeling his approach after those like successes or failures and a major failure in our country right now is the the schools reopening amid covid and kids are being suspended from schools because they are videotaping egregious of, of social distancing orders and schools are being they're trying to say they're doing it and trying to publicize that they're doing it and creating a false sense of security for the parents and the teachers and the administrators. And in actuality, you just have kids who are not wearing masks, who are not socially distant, and there are, there's no hand sanitizer or any kind of sanitization visually in those, document, those documented infractions. And that is what we're going to see in New Jersey because that is what is happening across the country. And... We have a obligation, a moral obligation to protect those who cannot defend themselves. Children are very obviously being silenced in a number of different ways. And the idea that you're going to send them to school um, amid a global pandemic, and if they speak out about being afraid of what is physically happening and endangering their lives, and you're going to suspend them from school, isn't that counterintuitive? You know, you're going to keep them from going to school because they are talking about how you are endangering their lives, but you want to reopen the school because, like, what what are you doing as a as a school? You know, and I think that's what we're going to see in New Jersey, unfortunately. Murphy's waffling on the issue because of a number of different business and financial pressures. <laughs> you know, he's not the governor of finance, you know what I mean? He's the governor of New Jersey. And New Jersey is made up of citizens who are very, very <laughs> in danger. That's just it. Yeah. So do we want to move on to Murphy's Corner? Yeah, one to Murphy's Corner. <laughs> We've, we've talked already a little bit about what he's been doing, and I, I don't know what what the other words are, <laughs> what he's been doing in the news and, like, the, the commentary he's had and all the reopening, everything that like, he has a hand in, but specifically in Murphy's Corner, his executive orders, we do have a executive order 182 signed on the 31st of August, which directed U.S. and New Jersey flags to fly at half-staff in honor of Staff Sergeant Vincent P. Marchetta. And then on the 1st of September, Governor Murphy signed Executive Order 183, which allows the resumption of indoor dining effective Friday, September 4th. And we're recording this on the 9th, and not the 9th, the, the 6th. 
So this was a new development and we're seeing a lot of, uh, we talked about before, restaurants reopening. There's a lot of talk about people being a little cautious and afraid and as you should be. Like everyone should still be cautious and still be vigilant. Just because something's open doesn't mean it should remain open. And that's not me hating on restaurants. It's me saying the the bigger danger is not the restaurants not complying. It's the the patrons of the establishment not complying. And that's something that I want to highlight as things start reopening. If you see something, please say something. I know it makes everyone uncomfortable to call someone out for not wearing a mask. Like when I was at LBI this weekend, I went to a beach bar and the bartenders and they had security staff there. And it was basically like a family outing area. Like there was a pool and there was a bar and there were kids running around and the bartenders and the security guards had to keep yelling at the kids who were walking around and wandering the area to put on their mask if they're not at the pool or they're not seated. And no one wants to yell at children <laughs> on vacation, but it's the the staff of the restaurant are put under a lot of pressure and the focus is on them, but really the focus should be on the patrons of the establishment. So that's my word to the wise cautionary tale of if you are out and you have your children, be respectful and follow the guidelines because you're putting the staff, the, the wait staff, the bar staff, the security staff, the management of the establishment in an uncomfortable position because their whole business can be shut down if you are found to be disobeying the, the protocols. And then they could lose their jobs, they're losing their income, the restaurant could completely shut down completely indefinitely because you're taking it upon yourself to be selfish and your family to do that. So that's, that's it for Murphy's Corner. <laughs> so I want to bring up New Jersey has a new law signed in by Governor Murphy. Uh, this is from CNN written by Evan Simcoe Bednarski. I think I nailed it. A false 9-11 call Perfect. or 9 call in New Jersey could lead to more jail time if there's bias. I'll just read from the article. Making a false 911 call based on someone's race is now a crime in New Jersey. Governor Phil Murphy signed legislation Monday making it a crime to place such a call with the goal of intimidating someone based on race or another protected class such as religion or gender. The measure creates a category for false police reports and incrimination in the state's laws against bias and intimidation. Quote, using the threat of a 911 call or a police report as an intimidation tactic against people of color is unacceptable, abhorrent form of discrimination. Individuals who choose to weaponize this form of intimidation should be held accountable to the fullest extent of the law, Murphy said in a statement. To, to make clear, police reports have been illegal for a long time. This just adds another category because it's kind of responding to the phenomenon that we've seen. Well, I want to say it's happened for a long time, but we're seeing it more attention to it because people have social media now and you can report on yeah. it as it's happening and well documented. Uh, exactly and it, it's probably like we've talked about the central park karen a while ago we don't need to go over that again but that's kind of like the example of it you know before the show i was talking about i saw a video of a of a black guy who was swimming in a pool at his apartment complex and like the police were called to kick him out things like that so i think this is great because there is kind of a difference between a false police report and a false police report that is essentially knowing that the cops operate firmly within like a white supremacist framework. That might be like contentious, but I really don't think it should be yeah. given all that's going on. No. 
out BLM. I think people should understand that. Like, doesn't it's mean that every cop, yeah, doesn't. It's weaponizing their their racism and their like systemic racism that they have to try to just what intimidate black people, get them to do what you want. Uh, yeah, and you see it. And other things like it's ridiculous. And you see it a lot in the news now, where I don't want to say all cops are bad, just like that's a constant, just like not justification, but it's the constant thing that needs to be highlighted. It's like it's not all cops are bad and will react to this phone call and come guns blazing. Like there was one instance where a 911 call was placed on, I think kids playing like soccer or selling lemonade. You hear the stories all the time. And like there are instances where the cops show up and they join in with the the games or, you know what I mean? So it's, if you call, you make a 911 call because you're for some reason intimidated by someone else's race and you use a phone call to weaponize the police to show up thinking, and you know, it's a mixed bag. Right now we know that. You might you might get a nice cop, <laughs> a sane cop, a rational cop that hears that re- report and comes in and basically does a, like a flips the bird towards the person who called 911 because you know they're waiting. You know they're watching for the cop car to come to, you know, quote unquote validate them and their belief that they're in danger, but so, like we need more instances of where that's happening and until police reform kicks in this is a good step but the less it shouldn't be a first instinct for people to call the cops on something that they're just uncomfortable with you know because that could lead to someone dying like that's that's where it's at you're putting someone in a death sentence situation because you're weirdly uncomfortable about someone else having a different race or doing something that doesn't include you or whatever. So this is a good move for New Jersey, but um, I I just hope that there's an investigation into how often this has been happening and that it's publicized and the repercussions for it are publicized, you know, like how many officers came to a situation like that and what was the outcome. And that like, we've talked about that being the, the, district attorney, I think that's his name, his like title, uh, uh, Graywall, and his initiative to have a huge database of, you know, police, police brutality. But I also think this would be another instance where you're able to publicize how many 911 calls were sent cops to dispatch to a situation where race was cited <laughs> and what was the outcome and the officers on the scene, like, what was the outcome? Was it positive or negative and if it was a negative outcome then like what are the repercussions for those officers that allowed it because what happens in the situation is the experience of it uh someone who assumably is racist (laughs) sees a person of color and is uncomfortable with them and then calls them a one on them for really nothing and then a cop is dispatched and the fact that the cop is dispatched validates that racist and if the cop acts in the way that racist intended to happen, then it really validates that racist opinion and that racist belief of, I can just call 911 on this person exactly. and that'll take care of the situation for me, you know? Here's my issue. So first, here's the consequences of doing this kind of false report. Uh, someone found guilty of knowingly placing a racist or otherwise biased 911 call for the purposes of intimidation will be subject to three to five years in prison 
a fine up to $15,000 or both. That's a higher penalty for a violation that does not meet such circumstances. Okay, that's all good, and it's good to punish people who make the false calls. But are isn't this kind of also hmm, how I word this? I'm afraid that it's taking some of the responsibility out of the cops. So if the cop shows up and shoots the black person, right, which happens all the time, and then we just find out, uh, do they just like then is it is all the onus on the person who made the 911 call? Does the cop not have any responsibility for the actions that happen? Yeah, uh, and it's. How, How's this going to actually be enforced? I, I, I don't remember if I mentioned it last week, but police only solve 2% of the crimes that go onto their desk. So they don't even do a good job doing the thing that they're telling us that they that they need to be around for. Well, it's also because they, they're not solving crimes based on their statistic, but then they're also encouraged to collect income through quotas and through ticketing. Oh, and, oh, well, they claim they don't have know? a quota. It's just at the end of the month, uh, everyone yeah. knows that they <laughs> ramp up the traffic tickets because they didn't, they slacked off for the rest of the, uh, earlier in the you month. You know, and it's just that kind of stuff of maybe things need to be looked at. And maybe. I have a, I have a friend that calls them road pirates. <laughs> oh. Or like highway, highwaymen. Because you, you know that term, highwaymen? It was like the bandits in the medieval times who. No. They would charge tolls to be able to go on the roads and stuff like that to travel, and you had to just deal with bandits and stuff because that's basically what the cops do. Yeah. Half the time, like, there's um. I remember when I was in school in New Brunswick, they uh we had like a meeting with the, I think it was a college Dems. I don't know why I was there, but the the mayor like admitted that it was something like a third, or like half of New Brunswick's budget or whatever was from parking tickets, and it was just like. It's like, okay, that's not good. Raise taxes. Yeah, like and it's you, also, your your budget is reliant on that now. That yeah, your budget's reliant on that oppressive <laughs> behavior. That's that's what's that's what's nuts. Yeah. Um, that, that's how a quota is established. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So those kinds of practices need to be eliminated. And that's only going to happen if we completely destroy police as they currently exist. And it's rough. We're going to need some serious organizing on that front. All right. um, Related to police (laughs) is, uh, do you have this story, the Black Lives Matter organizer that was billed for police overtime? What happened there? Yeah. So this is an article from CNBC. So this became, you know, a global (laughs) or at least a a national headline. Um, So New Jersey, New, New Jersey town tried to build teenage Black Lives Matter protest organizer a $2,500 fine for police overtime. And this is an article by Emma Newberger. And the key points of the article are that a teenager who organized a Black Lives Matter rally in Inglewood Cliffs said that she was billed $2,500 by town officials for police overtime. Emily Gill, a recent high school graduate who organized the event in July, was directed by Mayor Mario M. Kanjak, Cranjack, uh, to pay the exact dollar amount was 2,499.26, quote, for the police overtime caused by your protest. And the mayor on Saturday, in a letter to Gill, said he rescinded the bill for police overtime and explained that the bill was based on the advice of the borough administrator. So this article was dated on Saturday 29th, uh, August 29th, and the the outcome now is that the mayor rescinded the bill, but it's still the implication, and I hope I hope uh, Emily gets approached by a couple of pro bono attorneys 
and possibly sues the city uh, <laughs> because, you know, college isn't cheap. And she's this, like, for her to take on the task of organizing a protest or a rally, being a high school graduate, this is this is the future. And the future is calling. And the fact that she was intimidated afterward, you know what I mean? This is what it really is, is intimidation and censorship in you know basically a small town in new jersey which is insane and the emily gill who's an 18 year old who organized the event in july was directed as i said to pay this according to a report by new jersey advanced media um gill's protest also called on the town to increase access to affordable housing and the letter stated that gill refused to meet with officials before her event which left them scrambling to prepare security plans and in the letter it said quote your lack of notification left the borough with little time to prepare for your protests so that the police department and the Department of Public Works could ensure that everyone would be safe. So what actually happened was Gill originally declined the request to meet officials in person due to coronavirus and that the officials never accepted her proposal that they meet on Zoom to discuss the, the event. So um, she said that... Uh, the there was only 30 to 40 people that actually attended the rally and they caused no disruption and it was uh because they never accepted her proposal to meet on zoom because of the coronavirus they're then saying that she didn't meet with them that they didn't know about it so if you know there's going to be a rally or a protest you have the date you have the time you're trying to work out the details in person you could easily do that over zoom and then to charge her and try to intimidate her. She's a teenager. She's literally a teenager. Like, what are you, are you trying to silence her generation who have, you know, basically weaponized social media to um, destroy Trump rallies across the country? Like, is that, is that your move? Um, so I'm excited to see what'll happen. The fact that this is now national news coverage of our state and is a negative <laughs> story about how we are working to, you know, give the next generation a voice, especially someone who is politically active enough to organize a rally for something that they're obviously passionate about and to try to silence her and intimidate her with a bill of that size. Like if I got a bill for over $300 when I was a, a teenager, I thought I was going to the debtor's house and they were going to move me to Georgia, like in old colonial time. It's, it's wild. And they're apparently, the town council is blaming, because they're the four Democratic members of the town council, they issued a statement condemning the Republican mayor. And now it's a thing of, you know, Dems versus Republicans in this small town, which is, again, it's detracting from the actual conversation and it's finger pointing in a situation where if those are your elected officials you're supposed to be working together like if the dems knew about it they should have been working with the republicans and in order to just make it happen instead of having this bill be sent to this uh teenager um so that's all i had to say about that mike i don't know if you have any comment no i think i think you're right it is police intimidation and uh i think i don't really have much more to comment just it, <laughs> I mean, it, it, it just seems obvious to me. They're trying to intimidate people organizing against Black Lives Matter. And we've seen that kind of all over the country with uh, Black Lives Matter activists being arrested like way later after the demonstrations, like police tracking them down from social media and stuff like that. There's the strange string of suicides of all, of all the Ferguson prote uh, 
Black Lives Matter leaders from years ago. I mean, these are the these are like Epstein's type suicides of like their cars caught on fire and they have like two bullet holes in the back of the head and stuff like that. Just back in June, I think it was right where there was all those uh, like black people who were outspoken about police reform found suicide by like hanging themselves from trees, which is just like there's no way black people were doing that. I mean, just given the history of lynching and it was so yeah. many different people. And this is just like a smaller uh, I don't want to say a smaller scale version of that, but it's not like a less deadly version of that. But it's the same. It's it's intimidation. They're angry that they're getting called out about bad police practices. So they just do stuff like bill them for police overtime. Yeah. So I have a really weird story about how illegal donations helped one NJ law firm make millions off taxpayer dollars. This was from the NJ Herald by Terrence T. McDonald. I guess it was originally posted on NorthJersey.com. A, I'm just going to read from it because it's kind of un- not unbelievable, but there's a lot, of, lot to it. So a widening state investigation into a Morristown law firm offers a peek into a brazen pay-to-play scheme that operated for nearly a decade and won its alleged orchestrators millions of taxpayer dollars. Of course it did, because it's New Jersey. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be some wide corruption scheme. Friends yeah, and family that's, members, that's the way it works. It's always the way it works. Friends and family members of a partner at O'Donnell McCord donated over $200,000 on behalf of the firm to politicians and towns all over New Jersey, authorities say, while the law firm nabbed lucrative contracts with many of those towns. Public records reviewed by the record in NorthJersey.com show the firm earned more than $16 million from 20 public entities since 2010. First of all, wow, I didn't know you can, like, that's a great rate on return, like rate of return, like, you bet you basically bribe people two hundred thousand dollars and you get sixteen million in return. That's, that's, that's incredible, right? That's the dream come true. Seriously. So our favorite state attorney general, Gerbier Gerwal, filed charges against eleven people in this case and honed in on two other towns, Bloomfield and Mount Arlington. But the five donors charged in the case have given thousands since twenty ten to politicians in two dozen towns, including Jersey City, East Hanover, Morristown, and West Caldwell. The allegations illustrate to New Jerseyans yet again how muddy interests take advantage of lax oversight to nab public contracts. Indeed, when the investigation led to bribery charges against five politicians in December, Gruwal says one of them was recorded telling a cooperating witness, nobody questions anything. Wow. Um, I mean, he's, he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, he definitely not. So the article goes on to explain how the scheme works. I think it's worth diving a little into. So Elizabeth... Valendingham, uh, the law partner of the firm founder Matt o- O'Donnell, is accused of helping orchestrate a straw donor scheme that involved five other people. Vanessa Brown is one of Valendingham's sisters. Valanzitigwe owns a home with another sister. Gaia and O'Reilly both participated in the roller derby with Valendingham, who played under the name Wallace Lizzie. Straw donor schemes are set up so individuals or companies barred from giving political contributions can do so without tipping off the authorities. They get other donors donors to contribute instead, then reimburse the donors, which is illegal. One of New Jersey's most infamous examples involved Birdsall, an engineering firm that disguised more than $1 million in corporate donations to New Jersey politicians as personal contributions from its employees. This This isn't like typical only to New Jersey. A lot of the times you'll see donations to candidates from, say, like Goldman Sachs, and then people will rightfully point out 
wow, this candidate is bought by Goldman Sachs. And then you'll find some pedant who doesn't understand how this works that says, no, these are actually individual donations from people from Goldman Sachs. It's not like Goldman Sachs owns this person. And then they get into office and they just pass everything that Goldman Sachs benefits from. Um, yeah. This happens like all the time. So like when you see this stuff and you see people saying things like, no, it's just individual personal contributions from its employees, you need to dive a little deeper and know what straw donor schemes are. Grewal's office alleges Ballingham recruited the five straw donors with an unnamed co-conspirator and reimbursed them for the donations. Grewal says the amount that traded hands was about $239,000. The state has not identified the alleged co-conspirator. When Grewal announced uh, the charges against the five politicians in December, his office said they were co the cooperating witness was Mount Arlington's borough attorney and a Morris County counsel. Grewal did not name the witness, but at the time of the alleged bribes, O'Donnell held both those titles. O'Donnell did not return a request for comment, and neither did most of the attorneys representing the newly charged suspects. O'Reilly's lawyer. Of course not. Yeah, of course not, right? Uh, O'Reilly's lawyer said she is innocent and will present a vigorous defense. I'm sure they are. So basically, Bloomfield, this uh, donations dealt with the re-election of Bloomfield's, Bloomfield's mayor in 2010. O'Donnell did not contribute in the race, but Vanessa and Christopher Brown gave $8,700 total to MacArthur or McCarthy and the town's Democratic Party. O'Reilly gave $1,250 to Bloomfield Democrats. Her husband, who has not been charged, gave another $1,250. McCarthy won the primary and the November election. The next January, Bloomfield hired O'Donnell McCord to handle the town's tax appeals. Town records show the law firm billed Bloomfield taxpayers for $269,899 in 2011. Bloomfield Democrats received $8,100 in 2011 from a Basking Ridge couple linked to O'Donnell McCord. On one of the campaign finance records, the woman's employer is listed as O'Donnell McCord. Neither has been charged. Overall, these donors gave $48,750 to Bloomfield Democrats starting in 2010. The O'Donnell McCord contract with Bloomfield earned the firm more than $2.2 million, town records show. The scheme then expanded. The five charged donors dramatically increased their politician contributions in 2013, giving a total of $28,150 to politicians in, wow, that's a lot of places, Bloomfield, East Hanover, East Orange, Jersey City, Morris County, I can't speak, Morris County, Morristown, Mount Arlington, Plainfield, and West New York. All those entities had or would soon have contracts with O'Donnell McCord. The donations went to both Democrats and Republicans. Jersey City politicians were the wow. next biggest recipients after Bloomfield. And it just goes on these, like yeah. Are these all Democrats right now? Uh, the people named are all like employees for this law firm that they did this scheme through. And they donated to both Republicans and Democrats. But it looks like mostly Democrats, which makes sense because mostly Democrats run the state. Yeah. So they were, it's basically just they were trying to <laughs> get contracts. And but what I, wanna, what I want to highlight for our listeners is that it's just corruption is so natural in our state. And the idea that is perpetuated a lot is that the Republicans are evil. It's actually both, both of them, as Donald Trump said, they're bad people on both sides. <laughs> uh, um, but it's you, you have this misconception of that Democrats aren't corrupt, but if they're New Jersey Democrats, they probably are. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. So, so it kind of clarifies it here a little bit too. Rural has not made explicit how the charges from December involving the five politicians accused of taking bribes is related to the newer charges against the alleged straw donors. When his office announced the case against Ballingham, 
the press release said it is not directly related to the bribery allegations. In those cases, Grohl alleges the five politicians, including a former state assemblyman and a Jersey City school board president, took cash bribes from a tax attorney in exchange for promising him public contracts and jobs. So that's basically what they did. They set up like a straw fake scheme where they reimbursed people to pay politicians' stuff to, uh, for their campaigns in order to help secure ultimately contracts that netted them around $16 million after only spending 200000 something. And again, I'm just kind of laughing at how cheap the politicians are, right? Like they're risking corruption charges uh, and they like make only $200,000. It's not even $200,000 to one, like you heard it. It was like they gave like yeah. $10,000 to one politician, like fifteen to another. And then... Uh, <laughs> Like, not that there's a good amount of money to, to, to get corrupt on. I'm just laughing at how, like, pathetic these human beings are. And, yeah. And just how easy it is. I mean, they got caught because it was so egregious, their scheme, and they were sloppy. But yeah. this kind but of corruption that, is so common. You would think that, you know, elected officials would run, you know, trying to represent their constituents in the best way and make things, you know, what the whole political office is supposed to be. <laughs> But instead, it's I'm going to do a pay-for-play kind of scheme and get elected and then be a corrupt person and then vehemently deny it and then pass certain things that benefits the people who bought my my ticket. And this goes all the way to the top. (laughs) So last uh, last thing on this article, because this has a pretty good explanation for why it's so difficult to pursue some of this stuff. They say, straw donor schemes generally only work if the politicians who receive the donations know what's going on. But Austin Graham, legal counsel for D.C.-based Campaign Legal Center, said it's easier to prove the donors made illegal donations than it is to prove the politicians did anything illegal. Quote, that kind of setup that you have with that is a wink and nod type of a deal, whether some cocktail party in some lobby of the state house where the orchestrator of the straw donor scheme says, hey, have you noticed that all of the employees from my company or law firm have contributed? I hope you'll keep me in mind, Graham said. Unless, unless you luck out and you have a solid evidentiary paper trail, or some kind of smoking gun, it can be difficult to establish the elected officials were complicit in the scheme. So that that's that's pretty accurate. It's mainly just like kind of how yeah. they say it, like, oh hey, <laughs> wink wink, I, uh, we donated a bunch of money, help us out. Like that's pretty much exactly how it goes. So yeah, and then I also want to highlight uh, if you as the elected official deny that, or you put the wall up against that person who got you into office. They will then put that money maybe twofold, threefold into your your next election elections competitor. And it's the idea that politicians can easily be bought because they are beholden to their to their donors. And this is not just New Jersey local politics. This goes to the national scale. It's you are beholden to the people who give you money. You can't shun them. You can't accept their money and then shun them when they're in office because then you're beholden to them or they will fund your, your um, what is the opposite of election, your de-election campaign, <laughs> your, your, you know, but that's something you should be always aware of when people are accepting money from certain companies or certain industries, know that it's not for free. Nothing is for free. Moving on, the last topic of our headlines this week is yeah, uh, problems with the NJ census or maybe near completion. No problems. No problems. Sorry. <laughs> I misspoke. Yeah, this is a little short last little uh, segment for the headlines for this this week's episode. So this is a tap into.net article. So the U.S. census takers visiting New Jersey homes to complete population count by September 30th. 
And um, this is an article just by the, the New Jersey State Department and then the top in two staff. So the Secretary of State, Tanisha, I'm going to say Tanisha, Tanisha Way is urging New Jersey residents who have not yet completed the 2020 census to do so quickly as census takers have begun to uh, visit households statewide who do not, who have not had a response yet. And um, they're looking to have all the data collected by September 30th so that it can meet a federal deadline of December 31st to deliver that population information, which is used to determine federal funding for the next 10 years and the distribution of the next uh, the next 10 years uh, political political representation. So it's good news for New Jersey because you're going to stop getting all those notifications about completing the census if you've already done it. And if you haven't already done it for whatever reason, you can do it online. Just make sure you do it before the end of the month because that's when they're aiming to uh, ship out and tabulate that data. Um, but that's really it. Nothing else to say. <laughs> <laughs> Fill out the census. Moving on, you know. Uh, we're now going to play with uh, you a clip of the second half of our discussion about the election where our, we will talk about uh, Biden and Harris. We have a two-party system, which is essentially a class dictatorship of capital, of the richest people. And you have two wings of, of, of this one business party that are both telling you that third parties are, are not the answer. Well, sounds like they have a conflict of interest here and don't want you uh, <laughs> going in that direction. And in the history, people need to equate themselves with the history of third parties in the United States because they've they've always arisen and they've always challenged. And some of the most impressive ones, in my opinion, have been the the Socialist Party and and the Communist Party for what they actually did for real people. The the Socialist Party uh, famously ran huge amount of candidates all over, was gaining a lot of steam in their uh, late 1800s, early 1900s. And one of their their lead figures, Eugene Debs, was jailed and still got over a million votes while he was in jail during a time when there was no social media, no internet, no, I don't even think there was telephones. And then, then you have the Communist Party being some of the first ever to be like, yeah, black workers are oppressed and we're going to organize with them and try to help them in their unions and things like that. And so, so these are the people who, they, they're not scary people. They care about making the world better. Learn about them. I yeah. want to just, as a transition, I want to read something from Eugene Debs' speech. So Eugene Debs was a really important figure in, in left-wing history in the United States. On June 16, 1918, in Canton, Ohio, he gave a speech. And Debs and the Socialist Party platform at the time was were opposed to World War One because it's a reward of the rich people for the rich people leading to the deaths of millions. And what benefit does the United States have at all in getting involved in this? And this was a fairly popular opinion by, among people. And the, 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 the government at the time censored and repressed people for anti-war speech. For instance, the famous phrase, uh, you wouldn't shout fire in a crowded theater comes from a court case because Jewish socialists were panning out anti-war, anti-World War One pamphlets and they got arrested. And that was the Supreme Court argument and the analogy for why their speech wasn't considered free at the time. Wow. Say that. So Eugene Debs gives this speech and afterwards he's immediately arrested. I just want to read, not the whole thing, it's really long, but I'm just going to read just a, a medium sized passage from it because I think it gives you an idea of the realm of possibilities and what is the things that they actually hate about third parties. Is it because they're Russian assets? Is it because Definitely. they say awful things? Or is it because they say things like this? This is what G Eugene Debs said, some quotes from it. They tell us that we live in a great free republic, that our institutions are democratic, 
that we are a free and self-governing people. This is too much even for a joke, but it is not a subject for levity. It is an exceedingly serious matter. They would have you believe that the Socialist Party consists in the main of disloyalists and traitors. It is true in a sense, not at all to their discredit. We frankly admit that we are disloyalists and traitors to the real traitors of this nation. Every solitary one of these aristocratic conspirators and would-be murderers claims to be an arch-patriot. Every one of them insists that the war is being waged to make the world safe for democracy. What humbug, what raw, what false pretense. These are autocrats, these tyrants, these red-handed robbers and murderers, the patriots, while the men who have the courage to stand face-to-face -face with them, speak the truth, and fight for their exploited victims, they are the disloyalists and traitors. If this be true, I want to take my place side-by-side -side with the traitors in this fight. Who appoints our federal judges? The people? In all the history of the country, the working class have never named a federal judge. There are 121 of these judges, and every solitary one holds his position, his tenure, through the influence and power of corporate capital. The corporations and trusts dictate their appointment, and when they go to the bench, they go not to serve the people, but to serve the interests that place them there and keep them where they are. The poor, ignorant serfs have been taught to revere their masters, to believe that when their masters declared war upon one another, it was their patriotic duty to fall upon one another and to cut down another's throats for their profit and glory of the lords and barons who hold them in contempt. And that is the war in a nutshell. The master class has always declared the wars. The subject class has always fought the battles. The master class has had all to gain and nothing to lose, while the subject class has had nothing to gain and all to lose, especially their lives. They have always taught and trained you to believe it is your patriarch duty to go to war and to have yourself slaughtered at their command. But in all the history of the world, you, the people, have never had a voice in declaring war. And strange as it certainly appears, no war by any nation in any age has ever been declared by the people. And here let me emphasize the fact, and it cannot be repeated too often, that the working class who fights all the battles, the working class who makes the supreme sacrifices, the working class who freely sheds their blood and furnish the corpses, have never yet had a voice in either declaring war or making peace. It is the ruling class that invariably does both. They alone declare the war, and they alone make peace. Yours not to reason why, yours but to do and die. That is their motto, and we object on that part of the awakening workers of this nation. If war is right, let it be declared by the people. You who have your lives to lose, you certainly above all others, have the right to decide this momentous issue of war and peace. And those that was the words that got him arrested and sentenced to prison. That sounds like it could be said today. And it, <laughs> that's why I wanted to quote it. Yeah, it seriously could be. And so as now, now that we're think about that, those views, if something like that was said on television to everyone listening, the, the tens of millions, almost 100 million Americans that watch these debates sometimes, first of all, like it's just formulated in such a way that um, <laughs> like I, I, the, the fools that they uh, the two parties put uh, and nominate as their candidates uh, would never be able to respond to this stuff besides just saying like, oh, you're a socialist and you can be in. What would someone like Deb say? Like, yeah, sure. Like, I want to care about people and not send them to war and die. Sure, that's what socialism is. And they would have nothing to say about it. I mean, they would have a lot to say, but it wouldn't be anything substantive. So let's think about that as well. Now that we're talking about, oh, God, Biden and Harris. So the Democrats finally decided that they're going to nominate Kamala Harris as the, the VP. And 
I don't know about you, Casey, but I have no idea what they were thinking nominating Kamala Harris. Were you shocked? Because I kind of was. I was shocked because typically you'll, if you, the other candidate that was being considered was uh, Bernie. And he is a known democratic socialist. And his views, quote unquote, were so radical that uh, it led Biden to being the last contender amongst other, you know, catalysts for that issue. But typically, if you have a moderate a la Biden, quote unquote, you'll find someone who is more left or more, you know what I mean, to, to engage with that group who is going to support Bernie. And I don't know why this is happening because Kamala is not, <laughs> not uh, left in really any way. Oh God, don't you hate the phrase that they're using, which is just nauseating. This is the most progressive Democrat ticket ever. And it's well, just like, the same thing with, uh, well, cause it's a VP that. who's a female. And they always say it was that. the same they, thing with Hillary. Hillary it was, it was the president that. female. Like, that does like they're not actually mean... objectively the right wing of the party. Uh, the, other thing, the other thing that gets me is, let's back up just a little bit and think about Biden. Uh, we've mentioned, oh, I mean, we've dunked on Biden a lot, uh, like on here. But uh, I mean, this is pretty sinister. We're talking, I, I, I'm serious when we say we have, we have a class dictatorship of the rich and the two party is a dictatorship because Bernie ran and had huge ground game. And in spite of all of the stuff, I'm not saying he ran a perfect campaign. Of course not. There was a lot of mistakes he made, a lot of dumb mistakes, but People were actually mobilized to vote for him, in spite of the fact that uh, like everything stacked against him in the media and stuff like that. Biden didn't run a ground game. Biden virtually had no ground game anywhere. And it took, and we know this, Obama calling a bunch of the candidates in the DNC to get everyone to drop out before Super Tuesday. That just basically, it was like a mini coup inside the DNC to stop Bernie. Yeah. And now you think, okay, so Biden, why was Biden picked as VP for Obama? He was picked as VP Obama to to appeal to racist white people who were more right leaning but still voted Democrat to ensure them like, okay, you know, Obama might be black and talking about hope and change, but you, you still have Biden, so don't get you don't worry. He's not it's not too uh crazy here. That's that's basically <laughs> the reason he chose it. And that's usually why the VP's chosen. It's chosen to appeal for a group that the that he doesn't already appeal to the the presidential candidate because the VP is a useless position. It, yeah. they, all they do is wait for the uh, president to die or become incapacitated in some way. And in in the rare event that there's a tie in the Senate, they vote. That's it. So there's not really much for them to do besides be like a, a public head. face, a figurehead. And but the the circumstances are different now because Biden's Biden's got the the Obama clout. You know, people are democratic. Democrats are nostalgic for the Obama years for like a lot of frankly dumb reasons that I, they they really need to they, they remember the years being a lot better than they were i mean it, they, they were terrible and obama wasn't a great president and did a bunch of stuff that like if trump did it well actually we know we know this like trump does do some of the same things obama did things that i hated that obama did and now they're only freaking out like the caging of children some of those early pictures that came out were actually from like 2011 which but that wasn't Trump president in 2011. And <sighs> like the drone strike stuff that people are angry about him doing. Uh, Obama excluded that. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff. And then Trump is objectively worst in, in a lot of ways. Uh, don't get me wrong here. Uh, this isn't like a, yeah. oh, Obama did it, so it's good. It's like, no, you need to be consistent. And we need to be opposing these things always, which is why you should vote third party who, if you actually hate these things. Yeah. And, but what does, ha what does Harris, who does she bring in? She won 
She didn't even come in third place or fourth place in any primary. She sucked in every one of the debates, which is evident because she never really rose anywhere. She never came close to getting even third place in, in like any poll. She uh, doesn't basically only appeals to super woke um, libs who just like the fact that she's a she's like a black woman and which Biden already get they're not going anywhere else. Yeah, um, and it's also I think it's the same thing with the Hillary campaign, which was you had a lot of supporters of Hillary that would attack women who didn't support Hillary and yeah. called them like anti-feminist. And it's going to be now with with Harris, it's going to be well, you have to vote for her. Because it was the first time a female is on a major party's ticket as a VP, and that would be so groundbreaking. And if you don't support it, then you are either sexist or you're racist or you're a Trump supporter. Like, <laughs> yeah, I, or I'm, all of the above, you know? I always thought that was kind of condescending, as if oh, women only vote with their vaginas because it's not even true that she's the first woman vp on a major candidate i mean uh, does no one remember sarah palin they already did this yeah but they literally already did but this. that's so republican like, <laughs> yeah exactly so like it's clear that when a republican does it they don't like it because they don't like republicans fair enough i don't like republican uh, ideology either and their po policy platforms and stuff so it's clear already from that that you can recognize that okay politicians like sarah palin and Michelle Bachman aren't great. Maybe within our party, we shouldn't just support women just because they're women. We should find the women that are good and have positions that we like and, like, uphold them, stuff like yeah. that. So, like, part of the things that I thought was maybe because Biden... I think this is what they were thinking. They picked her because Biden has an awful legacy with, yeah. <laughs> with like, black people <laughs> specifically, but, like, everything. Well, like, if, you don't, look, if you don't... If you don't... The crime bill palling around with segregationists like and this is in the middle of a black lives matter explosion and so i thought that and then i saw an article i think it was from washington post here's the quote they say uh the only two telephone surveys conducted entirely after her selection harris's from cnn and abc news washington post show mr biden faring somewhat worse among non-white voters than in their prior surveys from june and july i don't know almost sounds like voters of of like color don't like tokenism because it's mm -hmm. apparent what it is she i mean there's the memes about her the cop mala memes but i mean she was a she was a district attorney she yeah. uh, in case people don't know this the some of the stuff that she advocated for was she refused um, to prosecute steve mnuchin the treasury secretary because he basically defrauded thousands of mostly black peoples uh, out of their homes they refused to prosecute him. She, um, in California, um, it's not just California, but California, in California, they use prison labor to fight forest fires. And she argued that it was like people were trying to get rid of that. And she argued in court that, no, it's a necessary part of the state. And like, we absolutely have to use what is essentially slave labor with prisoners. Yeah. She argued for that. She bragged. About, it's not just it's not just slave labor. It's you're putting them in harm's way. Uh, paying them like a dollar an hour or something. Paying a dollar an hour, which is a slave which labor, is, and then yeah. putting them in the middle of a forest fire fire natural disaster zone for probably crimes as petty as just like small possession amount of, of marijuana. Possession. Yeah. yeah, you know what I mean. Like which that, also that both candidates sense. are against the legalization of marijuana. Yeah. <sighs> then you have 
she wanted to throw into jail the parents of truant yes. kids, which means, you know, if you if your kid uh, missed school or was late too much, she would throw them out. She th- throw them in jail. This is an exaggeration. Look it up. There's, she there's, bragged there's about it. She bragged about it. She thought it was great. The other thing she bragged about, or sorry, mocked, was the idea of defunding police departments. She opened, there's a video of her openly mocking it, basically saying it's like a joke. And again, it's so out of touch. Yeah. Uh, both Biden and Harris are completely out of touch with how this country, what this country needs. So I have two theories. Because you have to ask, okay, given all these things, like why would they pick Biden and Harris? Well, Biden was kind of just like everyone else sucked and they didn't know what else to do. And they just needed to stop Ernie. So why would they pick Harris? I have like two theories about this. The first one assumes that the Democrats want to win, right? So assuming the Democrats want to actually win, and there's, I'll go into why I think they might not want to win this election, to be honest. But assuming they want to win, there's been a lot of glowing articles about her on foreign policy. Specifically, they called her the Truman, like a Truman Democrat. And so like, what the hell, like, what does that mean, right? So you have to go, go back, what did Truman do? And most people remember Truman for nuking Japan. And I don't think they are thinking that she's going to nuke Japan or China. Like, I don't think that's what they're saying. Truman is also known for instituting the containment doctrine. The containment doctrine was communism and world socialism needs to be contained and defeated. And to do that, that requires overthrowing democratic elections, funding death squads, invading countries if necessary, famously. The, the whole thing with Korea was basically containment doctrine, but the U.S. also uh, meddled and funded right-wing death squads in Greece um, under Truman. So if we translate that into modern times, like what's going on? Um, we're having, clearly the U.S. is an empire in decline. The U.S. is not ever going to recover from COVID in, and be back to where it was exactly before. The economic effects of this, plus just like the economy wasn't doing great anyway. It was basically a huge bubble that was about to burst, and the COVID just pushed it over. It was like the catalyst, not the not the like the the necessary uh, condition to cause it. So U.S. like um, imperial planners are looking and and thinking, how do we you know manage the fall or at least keep pushing it off of the U.S. empire? And you have again, if we take this concept seriously, that we live in a class dictatorship, like the two parties represent different factions. So that they're trying to figure out different ways. Trump is we escalate tensions with China by like trade wars and other stuff, which, as we all know, like different factions of capital in the United States don't like the trade wars because, you know, if you put tariffs that might benefit, say, if you put tariffs on Chinese steel, that benefits steel manufacturers in the United States. But it harms those who import steel, which is another section of capital. So like their interests while they have an interest overall in the U.S. being like confronting China in certain ways, how that goes about and how that's done is uh, is a contentious area. Similarly, we're seeing that with like the ban on TikTok and WeChat, which <laughs> could like for instance, iPhones are really popular in China, but if if WeChat is is banned from the from iPhones, there was just surveys done in China that like hundreds of millions of Chinese people are not going to purchase iPhones anymore. They'll switch over to Huawei, which that means that Apple, you know, isn't in favor of these kinds of things, doesn't like that because it hurts their profits. But other businesses, say like tech industries that make apps that compete with TikTok or compete with WeChat will like them because it w- wipes out a competitor. So you can see that the, how there's different interests rooted in people's actual or 
class's actual material interests. They're not a unified, like a lot of conspiracy theorists think that the ruling class is like a unified group of like 12 people that sit in a room and they all agree on everything and that they're exploiting us. No, like they, there's a lot of that sometimes, but there's also the fact that they each like hate each other as well sometimes and, and don't like the things that they're doing. Yeah. So, and it's often they're not public figures. You know what I mean? Exactly. Exactly. What do the Democrats want to do? You can kind of get an idea of what the Democratic approach to China was by looking at uh, Obama. So around 2011, Obama started what was called the pivot to Asia, which was in the previous period of U.S. imperial dominion, we focused on attacking the Middle East and we were confronting Russia. That was considered the prime enemy, right? The pivot to Asia was, well, these issues have basically been dealt with. China is the major threat and we don't have enough presence in Asia. Well, presence just means there's not enough countries that are our, our satellite states that we control. We need to do more of that. <laughs> and we need to shift more resources over there because if a conflict breaks out or we can't put enough pressure on China, we need to do that. So what did Obama do? He shifted a bunch of aircraft carriers over, built a couple more bases all over Asia and, and started doing that and also started planning for the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which was essentially an anti-Chinese bloc an economic bloc that was supposed to contain Chinese growth because the Chinese economy is growing rapidly. It defies basically all expectations in the West. Like everyone keeps saying every five years, in five years, China will collapse. In five years, it's like every prediction for the past 40 years has been wrong. And now the U.S. is getting like scared of this, uh, especially because it's clear that China is, is a, a force to be reckoned with if you're somebody who just wants China to be your... Uh, backyard factory assembly line where people only make a dollar an hour and you can just take most of the money from them, which is basically what Apple does with China and a bunch of places do with China. And so they want more of that. So what did Trump do when he came in office? Like the TPP from the point of view of imperialists were, you know, like a pretty good idea, but he didn't like it because Obama did it. So he just tore it apart and <laughs> that kind of like messed everything up. So then I have to think of something new. So, now, so going back to Harris, it seems to me that she wants to do more of that containment stuff. Like she recognizes that China's a threat, and she's mentioned that before a couple times in debates and elsewhere. That China's a threat, and I think that's why they like her because she's going to be a war hawk. Not that Trump isn't. Trump's a hawk. That's the thing. It's a class dictatorship. Everyone agrees yeah. that they need to be aggressive <laughs> in China in the ruling class. It's just how do we do it? But as I quoted Debs, what do we get out yeah. of tensions <laughs> with China? Nothing. Why do I? What do I care about intellectual property right? They're not stealing None. anything of mine. They're stealing some. No. Uh, uh, it's all widely overblown, but they're just stealing some monopoly corporations like Stuff. patent. Their that, tech. That, their yeah, that their code. Tech, their code that they just use to exploit us anyway. Yeah. So it's like. And that's a big thing against yeah. TikTok is that the U.S. government's at TikTok because it's rumored that TikTok is helping China surveil the United States yeah. citizens, but. What's going to happen if TikTok moves to be centralized in the U.S.? Like if a if a buyer like Microsoft, I think is what was being talked about, buys TikTok. Okay, great. Now it's just U.S. Exactly. spying on See, U.S. citizens. Like part who of really? <laughs> part of the problem was that they just didn't like they had access. They didn't have access to that data. Yeah. That's part of the conflict. The, the other thing is, um, and this was just leaked, which I thought was interesting. Uh, did you see that? The CIA leaked that there is no evidence that China, like TikTok spies for China. No, this I didn't is part see that, of, yeah. Yeah, 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 that, that was leaked. So you can tell that like that, that talk was just a talking point to make people hate China. And 
the thing that I find interesting about that is um, I thought they were unified on the for a while on the TikTok thing. And then I realized, like, the only reason they would leak it that is if, like, the ruling class isn't really unified on this yeah. issue of TikTok, of banning these apps, which makes sense. Again, if you they have places like Cap, uh, uh, Apple and other stuff. And also there's probably just the issue of uh, a lot of people in the national security state don't like Trump at all because they think he's too uh, – like, Obama's able to bomb people and mass slaughter people in other countries and then, like, you know, be like – I'm hip, man. What's up? I'm Obama. And then everyone's like, oh, he's so cool. You know, yeah. like people like he has that charisma, which that Trump has a charisma, but he's just blunt about <laughs> like, it's not like Obama. He's just like, yeah, we should kill all their families, yeah. which is like, you know, reprehensible to most human beings and makes the U.S. look bad. Plus, Trump's like isolating allies and all that stuff. So I think that's the approach. They let like Harris, again, assuming if they want to win. They picked Harris because they thought they could just basically make up that she's progressive. But the real reason, I think, is they know Biden's just like a – it's like a weekend at Bernie's thing, not to use a yes. pun for Bernie Sanders. He's just like a corpse <laughs> there, and they know that it's President Harris, and she would have a foreign policy that they, the DNC elites, and also a lot of the ruling class would like. Now, why do I think they actually don't want to win the election? <laughs> um, I'm not sold on either side because they put Joe with the because they put the Joe ticket. and Harris yeah yeah that's, that's partly it but also um, they have no ideas we're in one of the Dude. worst crises in American history it's the combination of a 1918 plague with the Great Depression so I mentioned earlier the US economy is going to contract by a third this is due to evidence um, that the Federal Reserve put out where they said that like Basically, if we assume we have similar growth, which is negative growth, as we had, uh, by 2021, the U.S. economy will contract by one-third. And why am I bringing up China? Is it just because, oh, you know, like, why does Mike You're talk so about China? You're so obsessed with China, I'm so obsessed. Mike. It's just because he's already trying Why don't you ask it out already? And I don't I just ask China out. It's like, <laughs> no, it's because if the U.S. economy contracts by a third, its GDP will be about equivalent to China. And this will be the first time in human history— that a country, well, since the history of capitalism, I should say, that a country of what is called the global south has an equivalent GDP of not just like like France or something, but like the United States. Yeah. So if you don't understand what that means, I think that's 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 a huge loss of wealth, a one third contraction of your economy. That is something that is freaking out huge sections of of the ruling class, and it should be freaking us out. Not that we're going to be equivalent to China, but. A one-third contraction of GDP is the loss, as it already has been, millions of jobs that are never going to come back. It's going to yeah. take – it took – to give you an idea, the 2008-9 crisis was very deep, and it hurt. Like, a lot of us lived through that. This crisis is far worse economically. It took about 10 years to recover from 2008-9. How long do you think it's going to recover for the, this, this crisis, especially given the fact that we're inevitably going to have a second wave during flu season? Things are going to have to shut down again. Like everyone knows this is going to happen. Yeah. If things don't shut down, more people are going to get sick, and the economy is just going to get worse as well. So, if if you're a political party, right, and you're made up of rich people, and you don't really care about human beings, right? Because let's be honest, the Dems don't, and the Republicans don't. They don't really care. I mean, there's you could find a few like maybe Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Rashida Tlaib. I believe they're genuine in their cares, but they're not representative of the Democratic Party. They're no. weak. There's only like a few of them. What do you gain? Um, no, sorry, back up just even a little bit more. 
So through this entire process, the devs have been basically absent, right? They haven't come up with anything. They haven't put out, like, anything serious. Can I just uh, say, yeah, um, you're saying they're not putting anything out there, but I'm saying if you go to Biden's campaign site, you get 45 buckets thrown at you, non-alphabetical order, not any like category, like no categories, like really built out. It's just like technically, I think 46 little buckets where it's all his different bold ideas, which really it just says the Biden agenda for women, Joe Biden's roadmap for reopening schools safely, Joe's leadership in times of crisis, the Biden plan. Oh, that's a great the one. Biden the, leadership agenda. In <laughs> the leadership in times of crisis is apparently doing basically no interviews because they can't get the guy to say a sentence without screwing it up. Yeah. But it's I one want... thing to put stuff on the website, but people don't read the website. Like only nerds go on and read the websites. Like, yeah. I'm like we're those nerds. But, like, that's... But what I want to say though, is just, it's all, all of it. Like the Harris selection you could tell has actually no bearing on the platform because the whole entire site is all about Biden, Biden's agenda, Biden's plans. It's not organized at all, which means someone else just slapped this stuff together and they really don't care if you understand or if it's easy to navigate to understand. Which kind of seems like they don't want to win, right? Exactly. I mean, like, I mean when it comes down to it, when they can't, <laughs> When they can't even get a website right, it's like, um, how much do they care about this? Yeah, and, and also, really quick, I want to say, when you go onto the website, you get a push for a campaign donation. And Joe Biden, just so you know, is about six foot. Kamala is about five foot two. But in their photo together, which is photoshopped, Kamala's face is like two times larger. And she's about like your height of Biden, which doesn't make <laughs> doesn't make any sense. Any sense? Like she width wise, she's that like stuff almost... they make. That stuff they make fun of Trump <laughs> for doing in his campaign, right? But it's just like you have the money, you can make this happen, you can make it work. If you're gonna ask for over two thousand dollars from me, I would hope that you're uh, <laughs> you're like able to Photoshop a size you're actually, appropriate. You're actually trying to win too. Yeah. So like, here's the thing. They clearly aren't running a great campaign and clearly. that's what makes me think <laughs> that they're not really serious about winning because imagine that what is a day one biden administration going to deal with a covid nightmare that was completely mismanaged by trump that seems almost no hope of improving and people aren't gonna like people are gonna quickly forget about trump and focus on the fact that biden's president and when things aren't getting better under biden his his, his numbers are gonna uh, tank and 2024 is not that far away relatively and he can get voted out or he'll die and Kamala will take over. Who knows? But still, that still harms Harris. The other issue is you have an economy that is completely destroyed. There's no actual, um, like, I haven't seen any, like, New Deal type legislation that we need. Like, what are they going to do? No, no one's come up with anything. Interest rates are already negative for rich people. Uh, everything they've already normally done uh, last time, they've already done. Listen, has, he, picked, he picked a VP. Let's just all yeah. move on. Let's ignore. <laughs> exactly. So. To close, I basically think, obviously, Biden and Harris are terrible candidates, and Trump is a terrible president. I think the reasoning behind the Democratic Party is they picked Harris for her foreign policy, and they thought they would give, like, a fresh face. They're hoping they can trick young people, but young people are smarter than that, and also mostly apolitical, <laughs> so it's not going to work. But the other thing is, I think they don't actually care. Uh, Trump brings in a lot of money for the Democrats, because he's, like, so vile that they get to just be, like, they get their usual fundraising source— and also, like, ex-Republicans. So having yeah. Trump continue to alienate, like, the so-called moderate Republicans 
and having them donate to the Democratic Party, another four years of that isn't too bad, um, no. uh, honestly. And the Dems don't actually care about the Supreme Court. I wish people would know that. That's just something they use to dangle over our heads. How do I know that? Because they basically just nominate right-wingers anyway. That's what Merrick Garland was. They nominated Merrick Garland, who had like a 97% vote, uh, like record similar to Kavanaugh. So they basically nominated a non-drunk rapist Kavanaugh, and that was it. <laughs> but like to me, just a non-drunk rapist who does the same things as a drunk rapist—that's not progress. Like we need a shoot a little higher than that. It's the um, illusion of progress. Exactly, exactly. So that's probably why I'm going to be voting third party. I haven't decided if I'm voting PSL or if I'm going to vote Green Party. But at any rate, I implore people to check other parties out. We gotta. We got to destroy this monstrous two-party dictatorship. It, it's getting people killed. We're, we're witnessing it happening in our lives today. Well, that's great, Mike. That about wraps up this episode. And I want to thank everyone for listening to us. If you have not already, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And I think on Twitter, we're at Jersey Matters. Jersey underscore matters, right, Mike? That's right. Jersey underscore matters. On Instagram, we're at Jersey Matters Podcast. And tune in next week, where we'll give you some more headlines and little topics about New Jersey. Thank you for listening. Thanks, everybody. Bye.